Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. my friends who listen to Future Primitive. This week, I am honored to be with Amy Edelstein. She is an author, educator, and public speaker. She is a powerful communicator of ideas and beliefs that can help us transform ourselves and the culture we live in. She is a Cornell University College Scholar and has 30 years of experience of contemplative practice, including a background in both Western and Eastern spiritual traditions. Amy is the co-founder of Emergence Education, which produces educational material for personal growth and the exploration of cultural development. She is the author of Love, Marriage, and Evolution, and Great Awakenings, Radical Visions of Spiritual Love and Evolution, and is currently working on a third book about evolutionary spirituality. Amy lives in Philadelphia with her husband, Jeff Carrera. She loves the city of brotherly love, and its visionary roots. Well, Amy, welcome. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. Good. And I love Philadelphia so much. That's where I got sober uh, Mm. almost 31 years ago. And uh, so I consider it the city of my rebirth. So it, it has an uplifting effect on a lot of people. It really, there's something unusual in this city, both its uh, revolutionary roots um, at the beginning of America, you know, the United States' history, but prior to that, its founding by William Penn on Quaker values, abolition, peace, equality of women back in the 1600s, and then before that, it, there were many sacred sites to uh, the indigenous Americans prior to William Penn's coming, and it's a it's a powerful it's a powerful confluence of different influences, all with an aspiration towards uh, upliftment of of our social and and spiritual roots. It doesn't have that reputation now. Most people think of it as a city filled with poverty and urban strife. But it really is a remarkable place, and I think one of the best-kept secrets of the East Coast. I totally, totally agree with you, and will always be grateful to Philadelphia. So, Amy, could you tell us what evolutionary spirituality is? 
I'd be happy to. Let me preface Thanks. that by saying that evolutionary spirituality is in the process of being defined. Uh-huh. So there isn't a definitive study or understanding or set of principles and practices. Loosely, what I could say about evolutionary spirituality is that it sets our spiritual development in the context of our evolving universe. So there's an interrelationship between the profound realization of spirit or consciousness or oneness and the the reality that we live not just in a world but in a, a cosmos that is breathing and living and moving and changing and developing and it has a very long history, billions and billions of years of history and we're, we interact with that. We're interrelated to that. We're, the relationship between the cosmos and us is really um, an important factor when we're looking at the upliftment and illumination of our own consciousness and awareness. Well, you, uh, you describe this time where you were a child and your father, a particle physicist, took you outside and drew your attention to the stars and you felt the infinity. But the most uh, important part to me is that you felt great joy. Mm. I, I, I think that sense of expansion and freedom without boundaries and also connectedness, because when you look at the sky, what you experience is connectedness. You experience how everything is linked by this vast space. And so you realize no matter how far away those distant stars are, there's something between us and them that, that links us. And you feel very close to things that are so distant that we that unimaginably far away. And, and, and it gave me, you know, that I have a memory of both kind of frustration because my father was was a, a a true scientific materialist he 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 didn't really have a mystical side or certainly didn't want to acknowledge it but he really wanted to get his his children to understand concepts like infinity so he was really trying to get us to put our little minds towards infinity which was a little frustrating as a mm -hmm. 4 year old but i did feel that that sense of closeness to the galaxies and the stars and I, I felt you know the way that you can sense that the sky really kisses the earth there's this contact this moment of this, this space of intimacy with the planet and and um, that left a big impression on me which which I came to appreciate much later on in life You, you sent us uh, an email where you say that uh, you are turning over in contemplation. How can we awaken to a relationship with the natural world? And I'm really drawn to what you say, which includes all things, plastics and programming, tulips and earthworms, all that is fluid. So... What are your thoughts on that? What has been coming to you? It's really interesting.
interesting. I mean, I've been influenced by a number of people. Timothy Morton, who's a, he calls himself a speculative realist. He's a philosopher. Um, David Abram, who has written in the 90s, he wrote a beautiful book about this interconnection called The Spell of the Sensuous. And the way I had been thinking about our relationship with the world was that here I am, and I am in relationship with other things. And I was like the great Jesuit priest and paleontologist and evolutionary philosopher, Terre de Chardin, mm. I put my attention and emphasis on the evolution of human consciousness, on really exploring in deep and profound relationship with other people how to come together in ways that expand our consciousness so that we really are intuiting at a different order and able to converse and understand uh, subtlety about spiritual concepts, about the the way uh, culture and structure, social structures develop, but really to work together and expand the sensitivity and capacities of human consciousness. And that's generally what's thought of as conscious evolution, a term Barbara Marks Hubbard really the grandmother of conscious evolution coined, you know, many years ago. But lately, I've really begun, I've been thinking a lot about uh, the, uh, the crisis with the environment and the need to respond in different ways. I've been thinking about the role that any uh, religious figures need to start assuming to, to support uh, changes in our, our practices in relationship to the natural world. And I really started to think that there's a way that we objectify nature and the environment and put it outside of us in a way that can't possibly be true. You know, there, and, and so I started to think about this more, and I started to really feel like there's a view or an awakening to everything around us that would would set human beings not at the epicenter of everything. It's a little bit like in Galileo's time where the earth was the epicenter of everything. Right. We realize, no, actually the earth revolves around the sun. We're part of a bigger system. And I, it doesn't mean the earth isn't important. It's a beautiful planet. It has, you know, the precious gift of life on it, but it's not the center of everything. And the same with human beings. We are not the epicenter of all creation. And when you start, I I really do feel it's a type of awakening which I'm pursuing, and I feel like it's also still kind of at the edge of my understanding, not intellectually, but but deeply, that that there's a way of, of seeing the whole, the vast systems, both in the natural world around us, the plants and animals and minerals and the man-made buildings and concrete, the glaciers, and also, you know, the the galaxies, the solar system, the, the vast world, there's a way of intuiting an interconnection and an interrelationship where things that we usually see as outside of us are actually extending themselves in relationship to us, just like I extend myself in relationship Mm -hmm. to 
let's say I'm looking out my window right now and there's this beautiful bamboo grove across across the way from me. I, I'm looking at that and I feel like I'm initiating that. But there's a way of seeing that where you where you feel that the natural world is itself extending itself in connection and in relationship in, in relatedness to you and as we awaken to this I think we'll start to develop a felt sense of sensitivity towards our environment, which will give us a, a much greater empathy and care and reverence for the mystery that we're such, you know, such a small part of. Well, I, I, I'll be adventurous here, and, and I'll say that um, when I have uh, uh, partaken in certain entheogens, then it has been possible for me not to consider myself the center of of the universe and really uh, see the tree seeing me or, or the entire environment or but how to uh, how to really feel that and sense it in in meditation or contemplation or simply walking around every day. Could you could you give us your experience of that? Yeah, I, I think it's true. It's just, you know, things like that can alter our consciousness, so we feel that. And, of course, some of the, you know, indigenous peoples and their shamans would speak to that. And I think that, but I think that people who don't have those sensitivities can... There are two ways about it. There are two ways to go about awakening to it, I think. And one is um, through allowing our consciousness to open, allowing ourselves to really let down our guard, let down our our, our rigid self-definition so that the boundaries of ourselves become porous and become malleable. And then we let in, we invite in, that which is coming towards us anyway, and we start to experience ourselves as as not as a separate object, but moving in this vast process, what White had talked about, the whole process of life, where Whitehead and then later thinkers like Gregory Bateson didn't, didn't emphasize the separate objects, the tree and me, but they emphasized that movement that we are a part of, so there's one thing happening. So that's you, you can start through a cognitive or a visualization. You can start to to awaken to the sense of movement, this vast movement that we're 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 not a part of it. We're all movement. We're all we're all the water. We're all the current in the water. We're not the separate molecules of the water. Mm-hmm. And there's another way to think about it, which is which is more. Um, cognitive is really to look at the, the, first of all, the interconnection at the smallest levels of being. You know, if you look at, at, if you telescope down and visualize yourself getting as small as that we could fit in the space between the nucleus of an atom and the whirling electrons around us, you start to see that those elemental, those, those very fundamental particles and the 
quarks and mesons and pi mesons, they're the same building blocks of everything. They're the same building blocks in plastic and in giraffes and in silver wolves and in little girls. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then you, you, you start to see that those building blocks would form together in different configurations and become this vast multiplicity that we see. So you, you can, you can take, you can, you can go on a sort of cognitive journey down to the basic building blocks and on up, and then you start to see that we cannot draw a fine line that separates me from everything else. Sometimes when I when I work with people, um, I'm also uh, doing some work in the inner city high schools right now with cultural development and and meditation, and I ask my my young high school students, you know, where did, when did you begin? Mm-hmm. What's the beginning of the self? So if you go back, well, you could say my mother, my father, or what formed them, or what forms of the sperm and the egg, and you keep going back and back and back and back, and you realize that you really can't draw a very hard line between when there was a, a, a sunburst that created the oxygen that we're breathing now mm-hmm. and us and everything in between. And so you start to see, oh, we are not just theoretically connected. We're very practically interconnected with everything. And and that can, if you really think about it and then let go into meditation and not try to hold on to that understanding but let it kind of work on on us from the inside out it does start to shift a very rigid and fixed way of relating that we have i hope that made sense yes yes it it made so much sense that i was taking a moment um, not to run over it because it's Mm. it's very uh, useful i think so you talk about homecoming to the divine. Mm. And so I have a two-part question for you. I, I think you could tell us what you feel home is. And then perhaps you could tell us what your conception of the divine is. Mm, those are great questions. Um. Home, home is, a, is a sense where we are really at peace. Uh, and that's coming home is, is that sense of when the veils of separation part and we peer beyond the fears and desires and limitations and memories of the separate self. And we see with all of our being a heart and a reality that's always been there. And when we, we see that, we, we realize I've come home in a way that I never have before. And yet there also never was a time that I didn't know this. I just thought I didn't know this. And that home is is a sense of 
infinity and eternity and and it it's filled with an overwhelming sense of well-being and compassion and love and gentleness and soft strength mm. and in a sense that from here we have the heart and capacity to to truly embrace the whole world and all of the suffering in it and and that to me is home that that um indescribable sense of of real non separation with the beloved and what is the beloved Beloved is a nice it's a nice word to use for that which has no no description and i i never i wasn't really raised i was raised uh as a reconstruct in a reconstructionist jewish tradition but not very observant and it was more a mystical and leftist tradition so it wasn't a lot of hierarchy or structure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I never really had a strong relationship to God. Um, I'm reading a lot of Christian mystics these days, which is fun. And um, so maybe through that I'll end up, you know, maybe in a year or two or three, I'll, I'll have a different sense of this. But right now, I've, when I think of the beloved, it, it usually means the other. And... I use that term to refer to this sense of home or consciousness because I feel it better expresses the type of warmth and the type of ease and simplicity and embrace and happiness that that spiritual awakening I feel is can really give to us. And and when you just use the word like being absolute or consciousness absolute or, you know, Atman or Brahman or these, these terms or emptiness or fullness, you can use those terms as descriptors, but I find them not um, too cool for my liking, at least these days. It's it's too, it, it easily to us as, as postmodern, mostly Westerners, you know, in, mm-hmm. in developed countries, it, it feels too cool, not quite cold, but too alone. And most people feel so alienated and afraid and, and feel like our world is so hostile that, that when we, we talk about meditation as a way to access being absolute. It's it's this foreboding sense that one's going to just dissolve and disappear into something that's not necessarily very um, joyous or uplifting. And and my experience of spirit, my experience of of this type of of uh, mystical uh, consciousness is is one that's very light. It's delighted. It's beautiful. It's joyous. It's it's simple. It's quiet. It's warm. It's embracing. And so I like the term beloved for that. Um, I don't mean it as another out there. Um, and I know that 
um, you know, the great Sufi writers speak of the beloved yes. in, in these these very passionate terms. I, I don't quite mean that. There's also a beautiful Indian poet. Your listeners may not be familiar with her. She's a 15th century woman named Mirabai mm-hmm. who wrote this ecstatic, outrageously passionate love poetry. I mean, she really threw all caution to the wind and was was a real wild bhakta who spoke about the beloved in beautiful terms. I don't quite relate to it in that terms, but that's why I use that. And I also like to use beloved because I did come, I spent many years in a more um, more austere path and with more austere types of meditation. So it's also part of my uh, loosening the boundaries on all of that to, to bring bring in some of this emotive qualities. Somehow that brings me back to those those high school students you're interacting with. And uh, I'd like to know, what are their worst fears? Uh, what are their what are their delights? You just use that word. Surprisingly enough, um, I've asked them to to list five things that make them happy and five things that make them unhappy, and then to tell me which list was easier to make. And to my surprise, the happy list was a lot easier for all of them, most of them, you know, like 80% of them, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, usually we think that our, our, our young people are so stressed, and when they live in the inner city, there's a lot of violence, uh, there's a lot of danger, there's, there's a lot of upheaval, um, but they're kids, and kids tend to... Also, they don't really know how to articulate the stresses that they're under, but they also, they're kids, so they experience fear and challenges, but they, they experience the fun of being, being a, a young person. Um, what they most like and also makes them nervous is, of course, friendships and relationships. They're, um, that's always big on their minds. Um, a lot of the ones that I work with come from rough backgrounds, but they're college-bound and, and aspiring. So they're, they're, they have a lot of adult worries on their mind, financial aid, mm-hmm. uh, career, making it. They're, they're very determined. And, and they're, really, they're really beautiful young people. And I love, I'm very passionate about it. It's, yeah. I, I do work also with adults, um, which I love too. Since I've spent so many years in transformation, I really appreciate having the opportunity to share a lot of what I've learned about the dynamics of human transformation with other people. But this this movement um, to work, I'll have 250 kids across the city uh, next school year, and really being able to, to challenge them to gain perspective on the self and to learn about the difference between mind, thought, and conscious and, and, and self. Who are you really? And to get them to look at their lives in the context of 600 years of recent history and why they feel the way they do and what social structures have changed, what's happening in their brains, and, and can they access uh, a different 
dimension of consciousness and being able to do that in the midst of these inner city schools, some of which they don't have any money for paper and pencil. It's, a, it's criminal. They have to have, the parents have to bring basic school supplies for the kids. It's, I, I can't believe it, but that's another story. Yeah. But, but they, they really, you know, and some of them don't respond and look like they're not listening. And, and then six weeks into the program, they'll say, you know, meditation, it can really help with relationships. You know, when I was mad at my mom the other day, I really thought about da-da-da-da. Is that what you mean? And, you know, other ones are having spiritual experiences in the library. Going, wow, the side of my head just blew off. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's wonderful. I... And I feel like, you know, after, after really having the opportunity to spend many years with different spiritual masters and, you know, taking the time to, to really engage in deep spiritual practice, that if I can translate that down for them in a way that they can really feel that they can, they can really gain stability, inner stability, regardless of what happens around them, that they can gain a sense of wonder at life, which they are. If they can have that as a, as a model and an experience at this age, it, it really can make a world of difference for them. So I, I feel really grateful to be able to do this and passionate about it. So perhaps evolutionary spirituality part of it is, is it can help heal trauma I think it can I think I think really getting a sense of the births and deaths that have occurred you know over billions of years you see well stars are, stars are born and die they're great they're great movements beginnings and ends and, and if we can start to recognize that there are always going to be upheavals, and this isn't to justify or validate the, the uh, you know, terrible upheavals that we're inflicting on our, on our biosphere or, you know, the socioeconomic challenges that we're facing and the racism and the, the um, you know, poverty, the sort of institutionalized poverty and particularly in America but also in the global dynamics it's not to legitimate that by any means and I am also an activist a spiritual activist but when you start to be able to see life in these vast swaths of time and you start recognizing that things will end and new growth will come out of that you start developing a sense of an organic rhythm and, and, a, and an ability to wait when it's time to wait and allow for a winter of the soul and a winter of different situations, that it's just not time to act, and then be able to recognize how to renew at a deep level, be able to recognize how to gain strength and draw strength from the sense of, of vastness and the sense of spirit and then be able to recognize growth where it's coming and be able to allow that beauty to come forth and to respond and to, um, 
create alliances and collaborate in ways that you know previously would have seemed uh, impossible. So I think that this evolutionary understanding, you know, can really provide us with so much good spirit, and and so you know such a sense of the possible and curiosity. Because when we don't, if we if we already know all of the factors, then it's going to look pretty bleak, our future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But when we look at, you know, ev- evolutionary trajectory and you see, gosh, you know, well, how were mastodons created? I mean, how, you know, it's, it, they came almost out of nothing. You can sort of trace them, but not exactly. And, and you start to realize that there, there's, there really is so much potential that we don't quite see yet, and if we can be still enough and have a big enough context and a big enough depth depth and breadth of heart, then all kinds of things are possible that we can't even begin to imagine yet because we, we just haven't seen any of those possibilities yet. Well, it's really exciting because it, uh, it feels like you uh, opened a door for adolescents and adults to become time travelers, mm. space travelers, time travelers. Yeah. I, uh, I was wondering, while you were speaking, I was wondering, what does compassion look like mm. from a non-anthropomorphic place? That's a great question. Um, I think compassion looks like receptivity. Mm. If if we're receptive, because usually we think of compassion as something we give out Mm -hmm. to others. So we're the center, we're the actors, and we're extending it. We're the doers. And as we become more receptive and open and touched by the currents around us and and porous, then I think that um, that creates a sense of awe um, and appreciation and gratitude and recognition of the value of everything around us um, doesn't really measure it against our own criteria. And so I think receptivity, usually we think of receptivity as something that's, that's, that's not quite as good as agency. Our, our, our Western culture, which probably since Descartes, really values human agency, masculine agency, uh, domination of the 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 doer and and the cognitive initiator and receptivity it, it tends to be thought of as passive receptivity for anyone who's meditated knows is a really challenging very active engagement if you want to let go if you want to be receptive if you want to open your consciousness you need to do it with with every fiber of your being it's not a passive stance at all, um, but it's a it's a conscious letting go of the thoughts and 
preconceived notions and fixed ideas that we already hold. And if we can do that, then then it becomes a place of 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 real creativity and where we're not the center, we're not the initiators, where we can intuit um, other um, insights and sensitivities that are being, you know, that, that we can experience from what seems like outside, outside of us. So I think that's, that's how I would describe it at the moment. Mm-hmm. It brings to mind for me the... Um the concept of the divine feminine and how uh, many of us uh, speak about the planet as a feminine mother earth. It sort of stimulates those thoughts when you say that it's about receptivity and that receptivity is extremely active. I think it's fine. I think it's something that I probably need to explore a little bit more in the years to come. I've tended to not use the words masculine and feminine a lot, um, although I did just speak about agency in terms of the more masculine. Um, and I think partly um, in my college years, I was you know, on the periphery of the, the second wave of feminism and the sort of radical... Uh, lesbian separatists up in Ithaca, New York, where, you know, they, I was sort of around them, you know, in my late teens, and, uh, you know, and and I I liked the kind of ferocity and, and appreciated the fight against a lot of social institutions that were very repressive, but um, it didn't stick with me, and I eventually uh, went to Asia for the next four years and and really sought the kind of spiritual path that didn't differentiate between men and women that was really looking for this uh, consciousness absolute. And so since then, I haven't thought, I know there's been a big movement about the divine feminine and the, the goddess and bringing back these, these feminine qualities, which I think is valid. I don't know that much about it because I haven't spent a lot of time trying to look at more universal qualities, also because masculine, feminine qualities tend to be so loaded and we have so many um, reactions to it, positive and negative. And yet they can be so fluid. Mm -hmm. Which you're seeing a lot of now with, with all the gender plasticity. Yes, yes, exactly. I was thinking about that. I've been wanting to, and it sort of relates um, in uh, in this uh, statement in your email of uh, uh, some of what you're up to right now. You speak about shifting hierarchies, mm. and um, I really like that better than masculine, feminine. Could you speak to us about how you see that? Um, our way of uh, of living in hierarchy could be transformed into more fluidity. Yeah. Well, I think 
we're all, I mean, a hierarchy is, a, is, is part of our culture, and it's also part of social structure. We need, we need higher, clear hierarchies to establish order. You know, a three-year-old is a three-year-old, and a parent is a parent, and a parent needs to act like a parent and not let the three-year-old terrorize them because they're only three and they don't know any better. So hierarchy is important. Uh, and and when we don't um, relate to hierarchies in the way we need, then you get a lot of instability and insecurity, which isn't supportive of depth and, and profundity and spiritual growth. But just like we, we, we have very rigid hierarchies, so we bias human beings over everything else. Now, human beings, I'm not saying that a human life is equally valuable as an amoeba's life. I don't feel that. But if our single-celled organisms in the sea become so, um, to- you know, so, so um, poisoned by toxins, it will affect us. So in that case, we need to value their existence. And we need to value this, this, this vast interrelatedness and, and the need for, for balance and health at all levels because we're so interconnected. So if we're going to poison the single-celled organisms in the sea, we're going to have trouble and everything else is going to have trouble. Mm-hmm. So do, do you value you know, a single-celled organism's life the same way you would value a, a, an infant's life? No, not in that way. We're different. But we can't create rigid hierarchies that, that allow us to objectify and separate ourselves from everything else in the cosmos. It, it, it's very, it, I think it's a, a big part of what's responsible for a lot of the senseless um, destruction that we have around us because we're not sensitive to that. And and I think some of the other hierarchies, you know, there, there are so many power hierarchies and power dynamics, and it's very challenging in in a spiritual path to have to to have um, you know facilitators and mentors who have experience, who are also able to um, empower really, truly empower the creativity and autonomy of all those they're with. And this is, this is really a big challenge. I mean, we, we have so many uh, um, situations where individuals of great promise are not supported to develop. Mm. I, I think you can see an example of, of shifting, you know, of a fluid hierarchy with uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, because you can see he he had the uh, foresight and presence of mind to dissolve his political leadership in his lifetime. There are a lot of reasons why he did that, but he was willing to allow and empower a a, a political. Um, organization to rise up in his lifetime and for him to step down, I mean, it was unheard of, and a lot of Tibetans were really mad at him for doing that. Mm-hmm. But he, he did that for a lot of reasons, and he was really able to recognize that his people 
in the you know twenty first century needed to have you know a different structure of governance and authority and hierarchy, and he was really able to do that. And part of it is because of his foresight, his strength and and the demonstration of his depth as a human being is that he has foresight like that. Mm-hmm. So in a way, you could say he's 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 calling the shots and laying out the future. So he holds a position in the hierarchy there, but his hierarchy is very fluid because he really supports others to step forward. And that's unusual. Mm-hmm. So soon uh, we're going to come to the end of this conversation. And um, I'd like to ask you, Amy Edelstein, what is your spiritual, mystical edge at the moment? I think my edge at the moment is, is, and I feel it has to do with a lot of my own life circumstance, um, which I'm sure will change over the years, but I feel the edge is really about uh, letting go more and more and being very uh, receptive in the way that we talked about and and having it, I and, and really, I don't know quite how to say it because I have a, a deep trust in in that which lies you know, beyond name and form. And at the same time, there's, I think, greater and greater uh, ability to express that, which I'm learning, that my edge is, is learning how to be able to communicate that in very different environments, in very different language, and to um, people who might never have been introduced to any spiritual concepts before or have a lot of phobia around that. So so the edge spiritually is about awakening to this vast interconnectedness in in ways that allow me to be incredibly free with my expression of it and and to be able to really um, engage in this kind of conversation in so many different avenues that I never would have pictured before. So I feel that um, is, is probably part of the edge for me. And, gosh, it's a, it's a hard question to answer. So I think that's, that's, that's part. And I think also really um, allowing the kind of joy that I do feel about spirit and that I do feel about life to be able to be able to be communicated to to the people who I'm involved with and who I meet and to um, be willing to you know you have to have a little bit of courage to do that because people do like to um, look at limitation more than they like to experience fullness it's it's easier and it's a little bit more comfortable for people so 
to to have a um, to continue to express and to communicate about this fullness and joy in, in different ways is I, I feel it's an edge for me. Um, yes, that's yes, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Amy. I really I really loved being with you. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to to meet you and I look forward to ongoing discussions about all these things and thank you so much for creating this forum for for ideas like this to be expressed it's really a gift thank you